I can see Robert. Oh yes, and there's Peter. Yes, he's very good He's the lady needs to buy a glass. Oh, you want the Bible? Yes, hang on a minute. See if we can find you one. Big friend. I'll wait till Robert's back with that Bible. Talk amongst yourselves. <coughs> you can find 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You want to, to be doing yeah. that. Strange actually because earlier on when Robert just prayed and said the biggest problem you've got at the moment, lift up to the Lord and, and I'm sitting there and my biggest problem was that I've got to preach, you know, and it may sound strange, you know, you hear me preach lots and lots of times, but I think in some ways the more you do preach, the more that you get to know the Lord, the more you realise that if you say something that isn't what God is saying, it's an absolute waste of time. I become so aware of this. I mean, some people could, at the drop of a hat, think, right, okay, I'll preach that sermon that I preached last week, and gaily trot that sermon out because it's a good one. But to do that is useless, you see. And there's, you know, there's this, you need to know, Lord, is the burden that I've got, is that right? And that's very often, like, just before I preach, the greatest problem I've got is, oh, Lord, I've got to preach. And one just needs to know that it's what God is saying. And I believe tonight I have got a burden, and it's, it's, it's a wide burden, it's a burden finally for the whole church in this country. But I'm not preaching to the whole church in this country, I'm preaching to a little bit of it, you see. So if you just turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and I'm just going to read <clears throat> verse 14. Uh, the context of this is, this is after Solomon has built the temple. All right, and God appears to him and speaks to him. <clears throat> and he says this, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's just pray. Father... <clears throat> we do ask that that you'll just send your Holy Spirit amongst us as our teacher. Oh Lord, human words, even if they're right, they're just not enough. Lord, we need the words of eternal life. And Lord, they're words that can only come from you through people. So Father, we just pray that we'll hear the voice of Jesus. Father, I just pray that you'll overrule all that what I say. Father, I pray that that which is of me will just be lost and forgotten. But Father, we pray that that which is of you will really stay in our hearts. Lord, we need you to mould us. We need you to really change us. Lord, we we want to do business with you. And Lord, that means that you're going to do business with us, Lord. And and we just want to submit to that. Oh, Father, just bless us. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 (laughs) I remember that God chose a people, Israel. And he said, I've chosen you and I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan. And this is some years after they got into that land and they've got their kings. And King David, you'll remember, said, Lord, I want to build you a temple. And God said, no, David, you're not going to do it, but your son will. And so Solomon builds the temple and then God appears to him. 
And the Lord speaks, and so much of what God said to his people was that if you walk according to my will, if you love me, if you obey me, if you submit to me, then I will bless you. And the list of the blessings in the Bible to Israel are fantastic. Most of them haven't happened yet, but they're going to happen. One day God is going to get Israel back. And all the things in the Bible that speak about the blessings in the land of Canaan, that will come to Israel. But also God said, but if you don't obey me, then these things will happen. Pestilence, plague, wars. And unfortunately, the history of Israel is that that is what they've experienced. Because of course they turned away from God. And even when God sent Jesus, they refused to accept him. And at this point, God reaffirms to them the whole thing. And he says, look, if you don't obey me, you are going to suffer. And so much of the time, Israel suffered because they didn't obey God and their land was sick, be it with war, pestilence, famine, drought, or whatever. And here, God is saying, look, when you realise that you're not being as you ought to be, when you realise that your land is sick and ill and stricken, then this is the way to get back the blessing on your land. Now, with a verse like this, I think it is quite okay for preachers to turn to this bit at the end and say, I will heal their land. And sometimes you have people saying that, therefore, if the church is right with God, then our nation can be healed. Now, I believe that that is perfectly fair to say, but that isn't the angle that I want to come at it tonight. The angle that I want to attack this from is more what it means here in the context. The he, the, what God is saying here is do the things that I tell you, and we're going to see those things, how we fulfil what God has said, and then he'll do his part. And he says that if you do that, then what has been given to you, the land of Canaan, which is now sick, that will be healed. Now for the Jews, it is Canaan. It's a geographical land. But the application of this to us is it will be us as a church, as God's people. Because what God has said to us as Christians isn't that he's going to give us a land as our home. We are our home. We are the kingdom. We're not going to get a kingdom. We are a kingdom. But what we're experiencing today is that we, the church, are sick and ill and blighted and under attack and in many places being trodden down by Satan, when the truth of the matter is that Satan is under our feet. But because we're not right with God, because we're not really going on with him in the way that he says, so much of the time we experience defeat after defeat after defeat, getting nowhere, not growing, not really moving on with God. And the context of what I'm going to say tonight is to look at what God says here. And to show you, and me as well, because I need to hear this, we all do, how it is that we can begin to check ourselves and find out, ask the question, am I moving forward? Am I growing in the Lord? And we've got to be honest if we come to the conclusion we're not. And then we've got to turn to this and say, right, Lord, there is something wrong with my own discipleship. There's something a bit sick, a bit stricken about my life as your person, your friend. Therefore, Lord, what am I going to do in order to get healed? 
And what I'm talking about tonight, therefore, is the healing of the church. I'm not talking about physical healing, but the healing of the church from the sickness and the weakness and the drought and the pestilence. Now, they spiritualize these things with me. Israel was a physical country, so it got physical droughts. We are a spiritual nation. And what have we got? We've got a spiritual drought. Where can you go nowadays to drink out from the Word of God? There are so few places, so very few places, you can go and you can hear mumblings from the Word of God, but there's a drought. And of course we know that where there's no vision, the people will perish. All right, And this is happening to the church, that the Word of God is not really being given out in power. And pestilence as well. That's when enemies... You know, sort of like getting the corn, don't they? I mean, tiny insects that eat away the corn in the fullness. And we've got a church packed full of heretics, of false teachers, who stand in the pulpit denying the very things that God has said. Now, this is the condition that much of the church is in. And what I want to do is to show you why it is we're like that and how it is we can change it, what we can do in order for God to really move and to change his church and to make it strong. Now in verse 14, and let's let's take this apart bit by bit. First of all, God says, if my people. Now this is so important. When God speaks, it is primarily to his people. Now God wants all men to be saved. And finally, the reason that we're here is to be witnesses to Jesus, is to preach the gospel to tell men and women how they can be saved, how they can know their God. Now, obviously, all the time, the Holy Spirit is preaching the gospel to every man and woman and child on the face of the earth. Even where evangelists can't get, you know, Matabili land, or wherever it is, the Holy Spirit is preaching the gospel all the time to all men and women as well. Now, obviously, God does that, but primarily... God speaks through his people. Usually, if God wants to bring someone into the kingdom, he sends a Christian in to get that person. Therefore, when God speaks, it is always going to be to his own people. Now then, there's an old chorus that says that Jesus has no hands but my hand, and Jesus has no feet but my feet. Now that's true. God has... In his heart, right from the start, God could have made the whole world turn to him. God could have decided, right, Satan has sinned, I'm going to wipe him out. But God has decided to do all these things through us, his people. He said, I'm going to be a partner with you. So what needs to be done is going to be God working through us. So therefore, the most important thing, if we want to see our land improve, if we want to see our nation once more come back to God, then what we must be concerned about isn't what God is saying to our land, it's what God is saying to us, his people. And what he says is this. The first thing, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves. Humility, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now I think the reason that it says this here 
I mean, we tend to think that being humble is kind of crawling around, isn't it? You know, sort of being frightened of everyone and, and automatically saying, oh, well, of course, if your opinion isn't the same as mine, or I must be wrong, and we degrade ourselves. And, and that's not really what the Bible is speaking about at all. But I think in this, in this sense, what God is saying is this. We've got to decide whether or not we're going to affirm that we are right and we are the ones who know. Or we've got to decide whether or not we're going to say, Lord, you are right, you are the one who knows. It's very easy. We have our ideas, don't we? We have uh, the way we tend to think. And I've found in, in me through the years that my whole way of thinking is all the time being turned on its head. All the time my mind is changing, even from things that I was convinced about five years ago in the Lord, I'm finding out that I was wrong about them. Not in the sense that God is saying, oh, that was really sinful, you were wrong. It's just that I didn't understand as much then as I do now. And it's very, very important that all the time we are open to hear what God is saying. And when we find out that God is saying something other than we're saying, then we have got to be prepared immediately to say, Lord, I am the one who's wrong. We've got to be prepared to test everything we think, do and say by the Word of God. And where we find that the Bible doesn't go along with what we think, say or do, then we're the ones who must change. We must be humble enough rather than to be fighting for our own ideas, our own outlooks. I mean, once you know something is of the Lord, by all means, stand firm, fight for that. Obviously, that goes without saying. Stand against Satan, stand against all things that go against the Word of God. But what I'm talking about is it's so easy all the time to think, oh yeah, but this thing in my life, that's okay. I feel at peace about that. You see, and we close ourselves off. We're not really open to what God is saying. Sometimes we hear a preacher who comes along and he says things, and maybe it hits hard. And because we're not humble, because we're righteous, because we don't want to change, we're, we're sort of very, very set in our ways, that very often we end up sort of tearing him to shreds, rather than really weighing carefully what he has said. It's what the Jews to Jesus. Do you remember? Eventually they got to the point, I mean, they went through, well, who's he anyway? He's just the son of Joseph. And all these things. You know, we grew up with him. We don't have to hear what he says. Any excuse to, to push him away. If you don't want to receive what a man says, the best thing to do is to destroy the man. And you think, well, of course, God wouldn't speak through somebody like that. And of course, eventually they said to Jesus, you're of the devil, that what you're doing is the power of Satan. And of course, in doing that, what they had their final excuse. They said, we're the Lord's people, with their lips. But in their hearts, they had their way of doing it. They were right, because they were Jews, and they were not going to change it. And therefore, they had to dispense with what Jesus said. And they did this by marring him. And it's absolutely astounding in the kingdom of God today, that the, the number of men who are faithfully preaching to the churches, going around with the Word of God, opening the Scripture, and the campaign against them in the churches is absolutely unbelievable. All you've got to do is keep your ear to the ground and listen to the latest rumours going around about 
David Paulson, Roger Pryor. Can you see? And many, many others who aren't as well known as them, but a conspiracy because we tend to be set in our ways and we don't want anyone to come along and rock the boat. What was the hardest thing for a Pharisee to do when confronted with Jesus? The hardest thing for a Pharisee to do was to admit that though they were leaders of God's people, deeply learned in the scripture, years and years of experience behind them, the fact was they had got the Old Testament totally wrong. Can you see the reason why they didn't receive Jesus is because they weren't humble. They wouldn't humble themselves. They weren't prepared to admit all these years, not only have I been wrong, but I've been deceiving lots of people around me. And it's the same in the church today. When men come along and start preaching what the Bible really says, then somehow we have to be prepared to say, hey, all these years I've been wrong. Can you see what I'm getting at? Be a very, very hard thing to admit that we're wrong. And part of being humble is simply that. It's being able to say, well, I realise, Lord, now I was wrong. And not to feel destroyed about it. I mean, sometimes I've found in the past that when God has eventually got through to me that I was wrong about something, uh, when he's eventually got me to repent, I then feel very destroyed. Can you see what I mean? And, and unable to, to pick myself up. So with some people, all right, there's no way they're going to repent and God has to fight and fight and fight with them and really beat, you know, really start to deal with them before they'll admit they're wrong. And then very often when we do admit we're wrong, and it's the reason it's so hard to admit we're wrong is because of our pride. But then when we do admit we're wrong, we're sort of flawed. And we can't get up and we're very dejected and we think, oh, well, how can I approach, you know, I daren't say anything now. Now, now I know I was wrong about that. Now then, what is the reason for that? Well, I'll tell you what the reason for that is. It's, it's because we're shocked with ourselves. It's because we found it so very difficult to admit to ourselves that we were wrong. And can you see that that again is pride? When we sin, when we fall, or when God manages to say, look, you have been totally up the spout. You've been leading lots of people up the spout. Now just admit you're wrong. <laughs> but, you know, when he eventually gets us to admit that we're wrong, he's then got to deal with us for another six months yeah. because we're, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the truth of the matter is, really, we were shocked. You know, that we were absolutely shocked. Now... When God really begins to deal with us, one of the things that he does is that he arranges things and manoeuvres things specifically to bring out your worst points. God's not very interested in your good points, alright? Uh, firstly, he doesn't think you've got any. It's, <laughs> he doesn't think I've got many. Now then, I'll balance that. God thinks it is good that you are you and I'm me. He thinks that is very good because we're created after him. You see, we're like him in that sense. So God thinks it's, yeah, I mean, it's good that you are you and that I am me. But there is no goodness in us. Can you see what I mean? So forget about, you know, this thing about, well, I mean, it's quite good. At one point, at one point, you won't believe this, but, but I found myself, and God showed me that one of the things going on underneath in my, you know, 
sort of Bible teacher going around very, very spiritual. And God showed me that one of the things that I was thinking is that I got kind of a short list of one or two things in my life where I didn't have victory. You know, just, you know, one or two things that were blatantly not God's. So I, you know, I was in bondage to them. I'm not saying I'm free yet. I know I will be one day. But I sort of got it, and I thought, well, there's only those two to go. Now, I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> so then, but what God does, he's not interested in our good points for the aforementioned reasons. But God specifically works to bring our bad points out. Quite specifically. This is why he brings you in contact with that one other Christian you can't stand. <laughs> this is why... <laughs> This is why God knows exactly which prayers to answer and which prayers not to answer. Now, I remember reading a Peanuts cartoon once and Linus was chatting to Lucy and Lucy was in her nightdress and that and they were going to bed. And Lucy was saying to him that I've discovered that if you pray with your eyes opened and your hands pointing down, you get the opposite to what you pray for. <laughs> Now then, again, this is one of the reasons that sometimes we get the exact opposite to what we're praying for. Specifically to bring our bad points out. For God to show us what we are really like. And one of the sure signs that God is working in a bit of us that isn't dead, one of the sure signs that God is going for a part of us that is completely unsurrendered, is when we find ourselves shocked or surprised by the extent of our sin. Because being Christians and knowing the Word of God, doesn't it strike you as being absolutely stupid that we could be shocked at our own sin? We should have known all along. Can you see what I mean? It's one thing to pick the Bible up and to read that there's no goodness in us. And then to make things worse, that our righteousness is like dirty rags. You see, we should not, we should no longer be expecting anything good from ourselves. So all the bad comes out, what do we do? A gas, I'm shocked, absolutely shocked. Even worse is when we're shocked about other people. Oh, how could it It's what we should expect. And when we find ourselves reacting like that, it's a sure sign that God is working in a particular part of us, all right, to bring that into death so that Jesus can then take over that part of our life a little bit more. Because remember, the only good thing that can come out of us is Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came along and he said, good master? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? God alone is good. Therefore, if you ever want to see good come out of you, Expect it when you see Jesus in you. Can you see that? Jesus is the only good that is ever going to flow out of us. Therefore, God has to deal with us. But can you see that we need to, to be at the point where we stop this fight with God and we say, well, look, Lord, yeah, you're right and I am wrong. And be able to lay that down without this self-whipping that sometimes we do. You know how hard we find it sometimes when we can't leave a sin with God? You know, we've sinned and we take it to Him and we repent and we know that the Bible says we're forgiven, alright. And then we do it again and again and again. But each time we're giving it to God and we know that the Bible says He's repented it. And yet we feel guilty. 
we start to feel, oh no, Lord, I, I can't confess this again. And Jesus says, why not? We think, well, Lord, this is just too bad of me now. This is, this is just beyond the pile. So, I mean, already we're saying that, that the doctrine of atonement doesn't work, right? So we've thrown the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith out the window. What we're saying is, but Lord, I mean, surely I can't just confess it. There, there's got to be more. Lord, I've got to suffer. I mean, surely can I do my bit of suffering, please? And, I, and we're, we're walking around with, with, with guilt, you know? I mean, can you see that? And then yeah. you sort of get two Christians, all right? You know, two churches, they meet together for a football match. And, you know, and there's one, the striker, he's going down the centre and the goal is on the floor. There's an open goal and he goes to shoot, but he doesn't. He feels guilty. He walks around. <laughs> and it's the state that we're in, isn't it? This guilt that's, that's piling up inside of us. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you. Again, it's a sure sign that we're not surrendered to God in that part of our life. Because what we're saying is, Jesus, Jesus, I can't have you suffering for me. You see, we want to suffer. We want the guilt, we want the judgment to come on us. When the Bible tells us that the judgment for that sin was poured out over 2,000 years ago. That sin is gone, that sin is dealt with. Jesus suffered for our sins. But there's a part of us that that's not good enough, we want to help. We really want to feel that we've done our bit, don't we? And of course, what's behind that is that what we have done, we get glory for. Can you see what I'm saying? The way that God has to go very, very deeply into us to bring out this self-righteousness, to humble us. Can you see what I'm saying? The way that we can find that, oh Lord, there's got to be just something I can do for you. Lord, I want to do a work for, oh Lord, just something so I feel I can repay you for what you've done. Lord, what is the work I can do? And then you open the Bible and Jesus, you read Jesus saying, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent. Oh, but Lord, that's too easy just to believe on you. I, I want to do something different. You know? And God says, look, salvation is by faith because that's all you can do. And of course, we can't even do that without the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit gives us faith anyway. Can you see? We're bankrupt. We can do nothing for God whatsoever. And yet we're just bursting to do something for God, don't we? You know, we find it so... You know, it's like if someone came out and said, you know, I just want to give you some money. You know, I heard that you're in debt or you've got a bill that you've got. Here's some money. Take it. I mean, oh no. No, I don't take charity. Can, can you see? And there can be an embarrassment. It's pride sheer unadulterated old man isn't it and that god is working in us so that it shows that the old man starts kicking starts coming to the surface and then god begins to work to bring us in our old nature into death in other words god begins to humble us can you see to get us more and more to the point where we start to give god the benefit of the doubt that's a major signpost in your christian life it's a major you know, when you've got to the point where you, you give God the benefit of the doubt rather than you, this is a sign of progress, you see. And you think, oh Lord, you know, thank you because now I'm giving you the benefit of doubt in regards to that. Thank you, Lord. And then no sooner have you said thank you, Lord, for that and he's bringing out another part of you and you yes. realise that you won't give God the benefit of the doubt. And so it goes on. But God is working to humble us, okay, to get us to the point where we're not going to stubbornly hang on to the way we've done it or what we believe 
or, or sort of self-justification. We just accept that where we find that we're judged by the scripture, where we find that we're found to be wrong, to simply admit it. We've got to humble ourselves. Now then, remember, God will humble people. But here we're told to humble ourselves. And there are two ways of doing this. You can humble yourself, or God will humble you. It's up to you. I mean, I've come both ways on this. Uh, I read a lovely thing once. Let God deal with you in the closet, or he'll do it in the dining room, you know? And it's up to us. If we'll let God deal with us in the closet, it can be between him and us, and to a certain extent, hassle-free. But believe me, the extent of our hassles are going to be the extent of our rebellion against him. Because if God starts to speak to us, if God starts to point something out to us, if he doesn't get that response from us, on goes the pressure, down comes the discipline. And I've had a lot of that. And we all need a lot of that. But to a certain extent, let us humble ourselves. We're going to save ourselves a lot of hassle. God's only doing it because he loves us. But in the Psalms, one Psalm, God says, Be not like a mule without understanding that has to be curved by bit and bridle. Like God's saying, look, there are two ways. I have got a purpose for your life. And that purpose is, I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to conform you to my son. This is what God is saying. And he says, now, one way or the other, I'm going to get you there. All right? Now, you know, we no longer have any choice about that. We've got free will. But that bit is gone. We haven't got any free... There is, if you've believed on Jesus, you're going to be like him. I'm sorry. There's nothing you can do to prevent that final. You're going to be like Jesus, all right? If only because when he comes again, we'll be like him because we see him as he is. So even if you manage to last... Right, I mean, say you live to 90, all right? And you've been a Christian for 70 years. And, and kind of 69 of them, you've been rebellious. I'm sorry, you can hold out right until your deathbed. But the minute you die, you're going to be like Jesus. You see, so you're going to lose. All right, you're going to be like Jesus no matter what. Because if so be, you receive Jesus, you're his. And he's going to finish that work. But the point is, God is saying, but there are two ways of me getting you there. Now, he said, I can walk alongside you like a man with a horse. You're walking alongside and the horse is walking along with you. Or even better... The man riding a horse. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? Jesus and we are his steed. It's a beautiful picture for Jesus to be able to ride on us, okay? Remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, you know, I mean, the, the church is the bride of Christ. And that's terrific. And we're going to be married. When Jesus comes again, we go to heaven and there we're going to be married, all right? But in the meanwhile, we're not his bride, we're engaged to him, but we're not actually his bride yet, we're his donkey. We're how Jesus travels into Jerusalem. Can you see that? To claim his own people. That's why Christianity is donkey work, all right? So we can let So we can let Jesus climb on us and walk sedately in. Or, or... Some horses don't like that. They're like, you know, donkeys, aren't they? They sort of, right, I'm staying here. You see. And you can get on their back, you can kick them like that, and they're staying, all right? And the more, so what do you do? Well, you get a bit, and you get a bridle, and you stand in front of them, and you drag them, and you drag them, and you drag them. Now, that wouldn't work with a man and a donkey, but with God, nothing is impossible. Therefore, God says, right, if you're not going to get there willingly, 
in submission to me, and I'm going to put a bit of bridle in your mouth, and I'm going to drag you there, and down comes the discipline. Can you see? And we can save ourselves. I mean, we're obviously always, we're going to experience, you know, God's chastisement, because all of us are rebellious, all right? To a certain extent, there's a bit like the mule, and God has to drag us. But there are times I know when I've been dragging back, and all it's taken is simply for me to review the situation and think, well, look, Lord, is, is my pride worth beating on getting? <laughs> and, and I work out that it isn't. Immediately I've got peace. And I think, why, why did I take so long, you know? And then the discipline stops. So can you see that to a certain extent we can make life a little bit easier? The Bible says humble yourself and we can consciously humble ourselves before God. And isn't this what God says? You know, humble yourself and he will exalt you. What is the victorious Christian life? I'll tell you. The victorious Christian life is simply realising that Jesus has ascended above everything and he's in control. It's then realising that because we're one with him, whatever he has done and wherever he has gone, we have done and we have gone. Therefore, Jesus went through judgment for sin. He died to sin. What does that mean for us? It means we're dead to sin. Jesus died to the law. We were in him. What does that mean for us? It means we're dead to the law. Okay. Jesus rose again to the power of God. What does that mean? We're alive to the power of God. It's as simple as that. And then what happened eventually? Jesus went right up, far above all rule and authority, and he now sits there on the right hand of God. Where are we? Sitting there on the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority. Now the Christian life is seeing our oneness with Jesus that partnership, that whatever is the truth about him, is the truth about us. And therefore his life can flow out of us. Now that is the truth of the Christian life, alright. But God has got to get us there. God has got to so work, where we're willing to, to be at the point where we say, well, right Lord, if I'm going to affirm that the Christian life is Christ in me, the hope of glory, then it isn't me anymore, alright. One of the aspects of the cross is I crossed out. All right, now, that's called genuflection. Uh, it's a good word, that. I didn't know that till a little while ago. But it's an I crossed out. And we got to realise that the victorious Christian life is I crossed out. It's no longer I who live. Now, we want that victorious Christian life. We want that exaltation. Well, what is the way that we're going to experience what it means to be at the right hand of God? It's going to be by humbling ourselves. If we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. So let us do that. We'll make a lot more progress than being stubborn and rebellious. Now then, and pray and seek my face. Pray and seek my face. It's interesting that humbling comes first. If we're not humble before God, we, we can pray, but it doesn't say that. It says pray and seek my face. We can pray. I mean, that's no problem, but it is sometimes. It's difficult. But the point is, we can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. But it's quite another thing to pray and end up face to face with the one you're praying for. Because remember, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Do you see that? Therefore, this humbling, the sacrifice that is acceptable to you, O Lord, is a humbling, contrite heart. That's what David wrote in the Psalms. A humbling, contrite heart. Therefore, with that, we can come and pray and actually seek God's face. Now then, when we're told in the Bible to seek his face, we're told that those who seek him shall find him. And if you look through the scriptures again and again at points where men came into a victorious walk with God, 
was when they saw God face to face. Do you remember Jacob and mankind wrestled with him and broke him? He had God face to face. And the result of that is that he was broken. Do you remember John on Patmos? He saw Jesus in all his risen glory. And he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. Dead to self. It's always linked with seeing Jesus face to face. Now we think God must be marvellous to be the kind of person like Moses. We read that he was a friend and that God spoke with him face to face. And we want that, of course we do. But what we've got to do is that we've got to weigh the cost of that. You can only have God face to face if you're willing for him to cross you out at every point where you meet. That's why many of us don't see God face to face. That's why we're not really, we know about him. But we're not really living in a great experiential knowledge of Jesus. It's because if Jesus is to have us face to face, it's got to be as people who are humble. It's got to be as people, not who are without sin, that account all of us out, but people who at any rate are simply willing to admit that when Jesus says that's wrong, that we say, yes, Jesus, you're right. Do you remember uh, Jesus spoke about, was it Nathaniel under the fig tree? Or was that Philip? Nathaniel, was it? No, under the fig tree. tree. And Jesus said, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. This is very, very important. Jesus didn't say, Behold an Israelite in whom is no sin. That would have been ridiculous because there was only one Israelite like that. And that was Jesus. He was an Israelite. But he said, Behold a man in whom is no guile. And Jesus makes a distinction, alright? There are two types of people. Now, we're all sinners. We're all completely away from God in the sense of our sin. None of us can come up with any good of ourselves whatsoever. But there are people without guile. Now, what does that mean? Now, let's stand Nathaniel next to, say, a standard common garden Pharisee, alright? There's a lot of us in the kingdom, alright? times there's this Pharisee inside of us. Now let's stand them. Now then, is one any better than the other? Well, God would look and say no. There's no difference between them in the sense of sin whatsoever because they're so far below my glory that they're absolutely black with sin. So what is the difference? I'll tell you. The difference is that Jesus has two types of people to deal with. All of them completely in bondage to sin. But there are those who are willing to admit it and there are those who aren't. And to be an Israelite in whom there is no guile simply means that whenever the Lord catches you in sin, whenever the Lord shows you that there's rebellion, no matter how intense it is, I mean, some people really grow in the Christian life, and yet they've got a rebellious streak, a very strong one. And all the time they're in rebellion to God. But you see, the point is, they've got hundreds and hundreds of tiny little ones he says, that's the point. God speaks to them. They say, no, Lord. And they rebel against him for five minutes. And then they say, Lord, you're right. right. And then God works again. And they have another rebellion <coughs> for five minutes. And they admit it. But there are other Christians. And I'll tell you, they're still on the same rebellion that God pointed out to them 20 years ago. Can you see that? And that's the difference. Jesus wants us as Israelites, as it were, in whom there is no God. Simply that when he says, you're wrong, we say, yes, you're right. Because what is guile? It's deception. And what about our hearts? They're evil hearts of unbelief. And God simply wants people who say, Lord, I realise from your word that I'm wrong, I'm sorry. And then you really begin to motor. And then you can be one of those people whom God is a friend with 
and that you have Jesus, as it were, face to face. Now then, and turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. And I think this is so important. And one of the very great burdens that I have for the church in this country, I mean, doubtless it applies around the world, but my, my brief is more this country in that sense, or limited vision, I suppose. But it's this. Now, we've got to ask the question, right, we've got to turn from our wicked ways. And in the New Testament, the word repent, metanoia, means to turn. It's that kind of thing. So here, what we've got is to repent from our wicked ways. Now, one of the questions we've got to ask is, right, now, therefore, if God says that I've got to turn from my evil ways, all right, I've got to put right in my life what's wrong, how am I going to know what in my life is wrong? Now, the important thing to realise, this is such a burden I've got, is that we have got to begin truly 100% submitting our lives to what the Bible says. To what the Bible says. It's very easy to end up being incredibly subjective about finding out what sin is. You know, in the sense that, uh, you know, it's purely a question of, well, if you feel at peace, well, that's it, there's no problem. But if you're a little bit troubled, then there must be a problem. Because remember that even our consciences are fallen. Even our consciences are fallen. Now, that means Satan can work through your conscience. The number of times, I mean, as if I don't have enough repenting to do, the number of times I've ended up repenting of something only to discover that it was Satan who convicted me. When I ended up with a troubled conscience about things that the Bible said were perfectly all right. I find this sometimes if I was in situations where, you know, maybe you were opposed and had to stand firm. And the result of that is that some people got offended, all right? And I feel guilty and I start repenting of it. Now, if someone has been offended because of your sin, that's something to repent of. But situations where I'd simply preach the word of God and stuck to it. But I find that this guilt will come over me and I'd end up saying, oh Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And of course, the more I repented, the more troubled I got because God couldn't give me peace because it wasn't him who gave me the guilt in the first place. So we've got to understand that sin has got to be very much more a matter of aligning ourselves with what the Bible says. Now, let me say something about guidance, because obviously, I mean, we all get in a bit of, you know, knots about guidance, don't we? I mean, we've all got this experience where we look back in the past and times where, but it really did seem that God was guiding us, and yet it seemed to go wrong and things like that, and we can't quite work it out. Now, I think one of the burdens that I've got, and I'm finding this true for myself, is that more important than things like, is my life going in the right, you know, am, am I following the way that God is leading for my specific life? You can ask that question and get quite screwed up, can't you? Think, or am I, you know, am I going the wrong way? Did I make a wrong decision about my job? Am I in the wrong church? Now, far more important than that is simply, are you ordering your personal life like the Bible says? Now, Take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. Now, we know that. <coughs> now, big questions of guidance will sort themselves out when we sort out the little questions of guidance. You see, there are some things where to get guidance, we need to pray and hear God's voice to us now, don't we? You can't turn up scripture in verse. Lord, which job do I do? Who do I marry? <laughs> you know, I mean, loads of things like that. But the point is that there are some things, many, many points of guidance, where you don't even have to pray. And I'm going to say that again. 
where you don't even have to pray. Because all you've got to do is look them up. Can you see what I mean? I'm talking about the way we personally conduct ourselves. And very often we, we end up concerned entirely with what you might call the big prophetic things. Or the big, this is how God's leading me in my ministry. Or this is how I'm developing as a Christian. And we completely forget the far more important area of how am I treating my wife? How am I treating my husband? And can you see what I mean? That if we take care of the pennies, the pounds are going to take care of themselves. If we remain obedient in the little things, then the big things are going to work out no problem. This is what Jesus said, didn't he? That he that is faithful in the small things will be given much. All right. And we have to make sure that this is true with ourselves. Now, what this means as well is that one thing that we must be doing is really getting to grips with what the Bible teaches. Now, let me hasten to add, not just by going to listen to Bible teachers. We've got to get to grips with the Word of God individually, each one of us. We've simply got to open this book and read it and trust that God will speak. Don't get hung up about the things you don't understand, but simply make sure that you're in obedience to what you do understand. It's really incredibly simple, isn't it? I mean, it couldn't be more simple. Skip the bits you don't understand, but the bits that you do, be faithful to them. Now, I promise you that if you were to do that, if you were to really say, right, I'm going to start reading through the New Testament, and I'm going to look at all the commandments that there are, all right, I'm going to look at all the teaching that there is, many, many instances where more or less in the Bible you've got, if this happens, then this is what you do. And you're going to say, right, I'm going to, as it were, underline every commandment I come across and I'm going to start doing it. And where I try to do it and I miss the mark and I fail, I'm simply going to say, Lord, I'm sorry. And I'm going to try again. And if I laugh it up again, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm sorry. But the important thing is that every time we realise that we've gone against what the Bible says, we're wrong and we simply say sorry. Now, I promise you, do that and many of your problems will fall away. Many of your problems will fall away if you really get to grips with and start obeying what the Bible says. Can you see what I'm getting at? It can be so liberating. It really can. So much guilt can fall away. You begin to get a clarity about certain things. You begin to realise how much of your Christian life you have led in submission, not to Jesus by obeying the Bible, but simply in submission to your own fears your own pride, your own bees in your bonnet. Can you see? It's the scripture that is the great balancer. It's the scripture that is going to show us how to live our lives. Now, then, one thing that I often find as I travel around amongst lots of Christians, and this seems to be happening more and more, and it's a little bit worrying, is that you tend to find a belief that quite a few people have, and it's this. They'll say of certain situations, well, the Bible gives clear instructions about what to do. All right. But then they'll go on and say, but we don't think that's what God is saying at the moment. Now, I've spoken to Christians who have asked me about certain situations. They say, what, you know, what should we do? Now, there are situations, many of them, that are covered by the Bible. And so I'll simply take them through the Bible, all right, and show them clearly what the Bible says. 
Okay, take an example, and I fell into this, take baptism. Now sometimes you meet Christians who haven't been baptised. They haven't gone, been baptised in water in Jesus' name. Can you see that? Since they've got converted, they haven't been baptised like the Bible says. And so they realise that the Bible says they ought to be baptised. And then you say, right, we'll get baptised. And they say, well, I have to pray about that. And, they say, oh, right. and then a few months later, or, well, I, I don't feel it's the right time. Now, I got into this because I was converted through the C of E. And I ended up not baptised. And some years later, I began to realise, all right, that ideally believers ought to be baptised. And so I thought, well, ought I to get baptised? And I had a real long list of good reasons why it didn't apply to me. I mean, after all, it's initiatory. And I've been a Christian for years. And a Bible teacher. Wouldn't look very good if a Bible teacher got baptised. And I had lots and lots of reasons, all right. All the time I was saying, no, I don't feel it's right. But really, what I discovered eventually when God got through to me was, Beresford, there is something that you have not obeyed that I've told you through my word. Do it. Can you see that? And there's no question about God's timing. The only area where God's timing came in was simply when I would be ready to actually obey. Can you see that? And there are loads and loads of things where we can simply turn to the Bible. Now, if we end up saying, well, look, I know this is what the Bible says, but I don't think it's the way the Holy Spirit's leading me. Error. Error. Because if you ever get into a situation where the Holy Spirit goes against the Bible, if you ever get into that situation, all that's left for is tear your Bible up Throw it away and go on. Because if the Holy Spirit leads us against the Bible, we can never know what's right about anything. Right? And somebody can come along. Now, all right, take examples, all right? Because sometimes you say, but look, the Bible says that we've got to do this. Now, one area where I found, and, and, and you know, it's something that God has spoken to me about a lot over the years, and it's a very, very important part of Scripture, and it's this. There is to be a discipline in the church. And the Bible states very, very clearly that in certain situations where you've got God's people involved in certain sins and having been put to them that they're wrong, if they don't repent, they have to be put out of fellowship. All right. And the Bible says that, and that's good enough for me. I've gone through a lot of trouble when I've had to put this into practice. But the Bible gives clear examples, all right, where you have, you know, where that is needed, people to be put out of fellowship until they repent and then brought back in, okay? And of course this is a very controversial thing. And people will resist this, I did. You know, there's something inside, it was a bit too heavy for me, alright? And God eventually showed me that my objections, you know, were far, you know, I mean, regardless of how I felt, I was going against the Word of God. And I was saying, Lord, that bit of your Bible is wrong, alright? And often you find this. Now, let me say this. Supposing someone came along to this fellowship and they're a believer and they said, well, look, you know, uh, my girlfriend's not here tonight, but I really want you to pray for her, all right? We live together, all right? But I really want you to pray for her, you see. And you think, hello, there's something wrong here. They're living together, all right? The Bible says that's wrong to live together. Now, let me say this. The only reason that we know that fornication is a sin is because the Bible says, all right? It's the only reason we know now then picture that someone says, excuse me, but the Bible says that, you know, you mustn't live with your girlfriend. You can when you've got married. But if you're going to live together and sleep together before you get married, that's sin, you see. And so this bloke says, all right, I'll go away and pray about it. And he comes back and he says, well, I prayed about it. 
And I know that the Bible says that you shouldn't, but I, I, I feel that I've got to love her. I, I feel, and can you see? Now, in a situation like that, we throw our arms up in horror. We say, but the Bible clearly says that sexual sin is wrong. You've got to stop it, all right? Okay? And then you get someone pressing people, well, if you haven't been baptised in water, get baptised in water. All right? And, and everyone's saying, no, you mustn't do that. Can you imagine what would happen if I went around and said it's all right to sleep around? Everyone would say, Beresford, you can't preach that. It's against what the Bible says. And they're right. But there are other things that I preach that are exactly the same as what the Bible says. And people throw their arms up in horror. Can you see it? They say, this is too tough. We can't do this. It's unreasonable to expect it from us. Can you see what I'm getting at? And that anywhere, anything that we read in the Bible where God speaks about how we ought to live, we must submit to that. Can you see? I mean, I choose this thing about sexual sin because all of us would say we must obey the Bible implicitly in regards to what it says about sexuality. We must honour sex within marriage because the Bible says so. And we'd be very strong about that. And yet there are about 500 other things that the Bible is equally strong about and we say it doesn't matter. Can you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Everything that the Bible says, all the teaching that's given for Christians to live under, that is the standard that we must have. And at any point where we find ourselves not in agreement with the Scripture, then it is for us to humble ourselves and to admit that it is us who are wrong. Now that is how we discover our evil ways that we must turn from. I got into a state once, it was quite a state, I knew that God was really dealing with me and, and I, I was learning to really appreciate the depth of my sin and that was good. But it was going too far and I was getting into dreadful condemnation and things like that. And I got it into my head that there must be other things that God's trying to convict me of and he can't get through. So what I used to do is get very introspective. Right? I used to examine every little part of me, every reaction throughout the day to see if I could spot a sin. You know, and. Once, I, I, I was just absolutely in despair. I mean, I was literally killing myself. It was satanic, all right, but it was also pride. And that's how the devil got me, through pride. You see, it was my own sin, fine. Satan can't get any hold over you except what you give him, all right? You know, that's, that needs to be understood. But then I found a scripture, and in the Psalms, it's King David, he says, Search me, O God, and try my heart. Oh, yeah. It doesn't say, search yourself and try your heart. It says, search me, O God. And I realised that my responsibility was to repent of what God was showing me was wrong. Now, as soon as you get there, you're safe, aren't you? You're safe from being in submission to yourself. I mean, it's an equal bondage. I mean, to be in submission to yourself, I mean, it's a terrible thing. All your neuroses controlling you. It's a dreadful thing, <laughs> isn't it? But it's, when we realise that how we discover what sin is in our life is what the Word of God says. Now obviously, if you're praying one day, and the Lord convicts you, and he says, look, that's wrong, I want you to repent of that, alright? Well, I mean, if we're kneeling down, we fight, you know, the Lord says, well, I'm convicting you of being married, it's wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> you think, you know, no, I'm going to throw that one out because of what the Bible says, alright? So, but, I mean, say this time the Lord says, look, this is wrong, you've got to repent of it. We instinctively know that he's right. I mean, we might disagree with him, we might say, oh, no, Lord, not me, but really we know, don't we? You see what I mean? That all the time we're being judged, not by men, and certainly not by ourselves, but simply by the Bible. Don't get introspective about sin. 
simply gauge everything by what the Bible says and let the Holy Spirit through the Word of God convict you of sin. Yeah. But every point where you find that it has so done, simply repent of it and put it right. Okay. So that's what I mean by turning from our evil ways, alright, to let God show us. Um, and then, oh, I've lost this place. I've moved around so much. My, Hang on. Yes, we're back here. That's right. And then, God says, when you've done that, that's important, then. Don't expect it before. Alright? Don't do some of it, and then expect it to happen. It will only be when we've done all of that. And after all, what are we talking about? We're talking about being honest and admitting when we're wrong. That's all, isn't it? I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, it's pretty simple. I, mean, I haven't asked you to pray for 28 weeks. I haven't asked you to fast for three years. I mean, I'm talking about revival. And it's this easy. You see, I mean, it's... Yeah. Dude, I can't, it's so, I find it ever so hard, but it's so easy. Can you see? Because the only thing that stops us is our pride. That's why we've got to humble ourselves. And when we've done all of this, what happens? God says, I will hear from heaven. I will hear from heaven. That's what God says. And heal their land. Now, in this context, what is the land? It's the church. It's us. I will heal you. I will heal your discipleship. I will put all the things right in you that are wrong. I will correct the church in this land. I will make you all what you should be. Now notice, this isn't anything that we've done. All we've had to do is admit we're wrong, that's all. Say, Lord, yes, I'm wrong. I can't make myself right. I'm going to leave that to you, but Lord, I'm wrong. That is all we're talking about. Now then, if I said that salvation is by faith, you'd say, Amen. i say, all you've got to do is believe. And you say, Amen, and that's enough we're saved, quite right. Now if I then said holiness, sanctification is by faith, you say, yes, that's right, we believe it. A little bit harder in experience, but we believe it, you're right. All we've got to do is believe, receive it as a free gift. Now let me say something else. Revival is by faith. Revival is a free gift. We, as God's church in Great Britain, are going to end up in a much more glorified state than we are now. We are going to be in the situations where we have, no, we have it already, when we have realised and begin to practise that we have authority in every situation we're in. That there are unbelievers in there and we can go out like spiritual combine harvesters and bring them in. There are people out there possessed and we are going to realise that we can go out and deliver them. We can bring healing. More, you know, but obviously the most important thing is thousands of people are going to be saved and made like Jesus. All right. Now then, that is what God is going to do, and it's going to be done by believing. By believing, doesn't that make the prospects a bit better? Does revival come a little bit nearer when I say that? When I say it's going to be by faith, I mean, it's easy, isn't it? Remember, the only reason it's so hard is because God's dealing with the pride and the sin inside of us. But God is going to heal our church. He's going to heal his people in this land. We are going to march forward victorious. Not because we'll have changed, not because we'll have improved. In fact, quite the opposite. We will by then realise so greatly how sinful we are and how ridiculous the idea of us ever doing anything for God. We will so understand that that we'll have long since given up 
and Jesus will be doing it through us. And that's going to be the only difference. We won't have changed, but we will have given up. All right? And when we've given up, Jesus will be doing it through us. Now then, that's the burden. But what I want to really emphasize from it all, because this is the this is where you've got to start. This is where you've really got to do it. It's what I've said about the scripture. Let the scripture judge you in all things. Now don't get screwed up about bits you don't understand. I mean, don't read the bit where Jesus says that, you know, there are some people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Don't do that and then chuck your fiancé. You know, don't worry about the bits you don't understand. You know, I'm talking about the bits that are absolutely clear to you, but act on them. For instance, I've mentioned by way of example, baptism. If you haven't been baptised, don't go away and pray about it. Go away and get baptised. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not Baptist. This isn't, this is just what the Bible, I'm no Baptist. It's just what the Bible says. Whatever it is, go away and do it. And if you go to do it and you bottle out, repent of that and go and do it again. And if you bottle out again, repent. And, can you see what I mean? God wants us without guile. He certainly doesn't ask us to be without sin. We will be when he comes again, but God doesn't expect that down here. But what he does want is that we are without guile, that we constantly live in repentance. But the bit I underline to you is really start getting to grips with what the Bible says. Don't master the Bible. You can't do it anyway. But you're not meant to. The Bible is supposed to be your master. Now, when Wesley and that lot got the Reformation going, all right, and changed the face of Europe, and we can do that again, by the way, I think we're going to do that again. But when they did it, a slogan arose, all right, because they needed something to kind of pinpoint what they were saying, the message that was needed above everything else at the time. Now then, if we'd have thought, right, what message would have suited the Reformation, little, you know, catchy phrase that, you know, the publicity men could work with, you know, what would it be? And we think, well, we're Christians, we understand the Bible, I think it ought to be Jesus only. That's true. But it would have been quite improper and useless at the time of Wesley, and I'll tell you why. Because the thing that was going on is that Europe was in bondage to a false counterfeit church, the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church named the name of Jesus. And God was working to bring out true believers to have a new church so that the world that looked on could think, hey, the Catholic Church isn't the only one, see that there was another one, and then realise that the Catholic was counterfeit by seeing the genuine. But if the Reformation had had as their, you know, their slogan, Jesus only, can you see people thought, but that's what the Catholic Church is saying. Can you see that? Their slogan was the Bible only. And that was what mattered. And for this reason, you see, the Catholic Church was eventually destroyed spiritually. I know it still goes on today, all right? And I know there are believers in it. I know that there are spirit-filled believers in it, but I'm sorry, the Catholic Church is a counterfeit church. Of course it is. And it's for this reason that they said the Bible is not the final authority. All right? The church is. 
And so they began to say that where the Bible says something, if we, the leaders of the church, formulate a doctrine that's different, then what we say is final. So the Bible is subjugated. Now that doesn't make you a non-Christian. I mean, I know Christians who subjugate the Bible to their own opinions, and they're deceived. But they're still Christians. But the point is, if you've got a church where that's been going on for years and years and years and years, eventually you end up with something that's warped and twisted and not genuine. Therefore, what is needed is for people to come along and say, look, the Bible is the only authority. Now, I know that I live, or I am to live in submission to Jesus. I'm quite clear on that. I'm not a bibliographer. Bibliologist, sorry. One of these people who worships the Bible. But all I'm saying is that finally, all I know about Jesus must come through this book. Can you see that? The, I mean, I know Jesus personally. Yeah, he speaks to me. But I know also that I'm open to be deceived by the devil, because he's cleverer than me and I'm a sinner. Therefore, every time Jesus speaks to me, I have to check that it's really him and not Satan coming as an angel of light. And therefore, I have to go to the scripture. So can you see what I'm saying? That at the time of Wesley, it was the Bible only. And that was the message that had to get out. Because if they just went out preaching Jesus only, the Catholics would have said, Amen. You see. And I mean, it's like today you can go into churches and you say, Jesus is Lord. And all the people say, Amen. He wasn't born of a virgin, wasn't the Son of God, but Amen. Can you see that? Because we're so full of false teaching. That what needs to be emphasised is the Bible. All we can know about Jesus is in the Bible. And finally, the authority under which we live our Christian lives is the Bible. The way to test whether how we live is right or wrong is the Bible. The way we test whether the church we belong to is functioning properly or not is the Bible. When we ask, well, look, you know, my family needs sorting out. Lord, I, I really need a miracle in my family. All right, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you can perhaps labour away for weeks and weeks and weeks, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And all the time the Bible says, submit to your husband. Lord, what do you want me to do? And you're missing it. The Bible says, submit to your husband. What do you want me to do? Or on the other hand, you've got a Christian man, but, oh, Lord, my family's in such a mess. Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And the Bible says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And it's there saying, Lord, what do I... Can you see, we're missing the place to begin. Can you see what I'm saying? We've got to lay that foundation. And there are many, many Christian families, for instance, that God will work miracles, be it with only one partner converted, or be it a Christian family that's in a real mess, the kids are rebellious and, and whatever, the marriage is, you know, I mean, it's a bit dead and, and it's all got a bit formal, but, you know, we still go to church and praise the Lord together. But can you see that the, the beginning of God working that miracle is when you begin to order that family according to what the Bible says? Can you see that? Therefore... You know, can you see what a waste of time it is for a husband to say, Lord, bless my family, bless my family, bless my family, if at the same time he isn't consciously putting into practice what the Bible says a Christian husband should do. Can you see what I mean? And where he fails, and we will, simply admitting it. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Now then, that fantastic, praise the Lord. But often we are. But where it goes wrong is when we don't say, I'm sorry, darling, I was wrong. Do that, and it's not such a problem. Can you see what I mean? Again, let us obey the obvious, and then expect God to do his bit on top of it. Can you see what I mean? 
So another why, a very long-winded why. <laughs> Ah, of, of saying that there are conditions to God's promises and we must fulfil those conditions. We must, God is a God of order. Now, if we get into the pattern that he wants, then the power will flow. Can you see that? If we get in the position that God wants, the power will flow. So get to grips with the Bible. Have you got problems in certain areas of your life? Right. I mean, if you can't find out, go, go and talk to someone who can direct you and say, well, look, I want to know what the Bible says about this. You know, I mean, sort of at work, I mean, it's a mess. It's, it's a real mess. What do I do? Well, find out everything the Bible says. Maybe you resent your employer. Well, it's not surprising if you're in a mess if you resent your employer, is it? You see what I mean? When the Bible says that you've got to honour if your employer is employing you, he's above you, you must honour him. It's no use resenting him and... You know, sort of like, oh, I've only had the guts to get a strike going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you see what I mean? First things first. First things first. And then everything will fall into place. Well, I hope I've given you something to talk, you know, think about and that. But please, whatever your problems are, get to grips and do what the Bible says, all right? You do the possible, and it's quite possible to say you're sorry. Quite possible to repent. No, no problem in that. You've got the Holy Spirit. You do what's possible, and then God will do what's impossible. Mm.